0: And the penalty for sin, the death penalty, must be paid. This is what Christ taught, and His resurrection validated everything that He said. No wonder they don't like it. It puts you in a precarious position. You either come to Christ in repentance and saving faith, true faith, or you spend eternity... In hell, apart from everything that is good and apart from God. And that last part is what men don't like to believe, but there are no other options. They don't see themselves as sinners. And the blood thing they would see as just a very primitive mythology. But the Apostle Paul thought very differently. Our verse says that we are justified by Christ's blood and we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Gerd Ludman, a German theologian, published a book in 2004. The book was entitled, The Resurrection of Christ, A Historical Inquiry. He states that the tomb, quote, "...the tomb of Jesus was not empty but full." And his body did not disappear, but rotted away. He now teaches at the University of Gerritingen in Germany. Gerritingen, Germany. But he taught at Vanderbilt University right here in the United States. And here's what happened there in Germany. This is very interesting to me. He wrote another book entitled The Great Deception, What Jesus Really Said and Did. And he says that only about 5% of the sayings attributed to Jesus in the New Testament are genuine and that historical evidence does not support the claims of traditional Christianity. How do you think the Protestant churches in Lower Saxony reacted to that? They did not like it very well at all, so they called for his dismissal as the chair of New Testament studies. Well, the state government that controls things in Lower Saxony didn't want to fire the guy. But the members of the faculty, under pressure from the church, complained to the university president. And they said, Professor Ludman fundamentally puts in question the intrinsic soundness of Protestant theology at the university. So what do you think the university did? The chair of New Testament was renamed the Chair of History and Literature of Early Christianity. Professor Ludman's research funding was cut, and his teaching was no longer a part of the curriculum. But he was still there teaching that there is no resurrection. How do you think he responded to that? He said, and I quote, "...most of my colleagues have long since left the principles of the church behind them, yet still seek to attach themselves to this tradition... By the symbolic interpretation of the Bible and other interpretive skills. Well, that's a sad place to which the church has sunk in our day. And that a man could write an entire book saying that the resurrection did not, in fact, take place. Now, you can still have a resurrection, but it doesn't mean coming back from the dead. It's kind of an epiphany of anything you want it to mean. Let's say that you were head over your heels in debt. And so you had a time of prayer and fasting and you really cried out to the Lord. And a friend who was feeling sorry for you gave you a lottery ticket and you hit the jackpot. That would be your resurrection. Or anything else that happens in your life that gives you a refocus, that gives you a new perspective on life, that would be the resurrection. The Apostle Paul would disagree with that. Now listen very carefully and see if you would agree. According to Paul, if you want to be delivered from death and hell through the gospel, you have to believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection. That's a pretty bold statement. Romans 10 and verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. According to Paul, if you want to be saved, you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now someone was say, well, now, wait, 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 that's not what those words mean, God raised him from the dead. Well, it looks like to me that's what they mean, that's what they say, if there's any propositional truth in the Scripture. And I believe it all comes under that category. Section B, deliverance through the gospel from sin, sorrow, death, and hell. So what if you do not believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Then you are not a Christian. It's as simple as that because the resurrection is the public declaration of every of the validity of everything Christ said and did while he was here on the earth if he was not resurrected he was a liar instead of a savior what kind of a savior would that be who didn't even tell you the truth about the most important thing that was going to take place to validate everything else that he had said Jesus, on a number of occasions, gave the prophecy that He would rise again. One of those is Matthew 17, beginning in verse 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill Him. And the third day He shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. Now, they didn't get it, but they were exceedingly sorry to hear Him say that. Jesus even went so far in John fourteen six to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except but through me. That's a pretty exclusive claim. If Jesus is still in the grave, if his body is still in the grave, he is not the truth. He would be a big-time con man because he convinced a lot of people that He would be resurrected from the dead, that He was, in fact, resurrected from the dead as a fulfillment of all the prophecies that had been given. Well, how can we be absolutely certain that Jesus is the truth and tells the truth? How can we know? By the way, do you remember in Scripture when Jesus was talking to men and they didn't get it? He didn't say, well, you guys don't have enough knowledge of archaeology. Or you guys don't have the scientific community who are validating everything that I'm telling you. Or you fellows just don't understand how physically someone could be raised from the dead. He never said anything like that. What did he say? He said, you err because you do not know the Scriptures. You err, you're an error because you do not know the Scriptures. So we're not going to be able to go to the physical sciences out there somewhere and prove a resurrection. If we're going to have evidence of a resurrection, it's going to come from Scripture. And we start off with unbelievably improbable fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, practically the entire chapter. In the book of Micah, we see that Christ Christ would be born in Bethlehem. He would come of the house of David. He would be born of a virgin. He would be crucified. He would be raised from the dead. He would ascend into heaven and come back again one day. And we could go on through dozens of prophecies, the fulfillment of which would be mathematically impossible, except that one man fulfills all those prophecies supernatural because he is the God-man. Well, the next thing would be the impact of his life on the history of the world. You've probably heard the incomparable Christ, a sum rendition of this. Dr. James Allen Francis first wrote this. And there are many different forms of it. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village, where he worked in, where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was thirty. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never walked more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of these things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old. His friends ran away, one of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property that he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Well, there are those who would disagree with that, but would have a problem answering this question. Galatians one three. What can deliver us from the present evil world? Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Who can deliver you from the present evil world? Not all the government committees, or the hospitals, or the doctors, or the drugs, or the police, or the judges, or the psychiatrists, or even Dr. Phil. No one can deliver you from this present evil world except Christ. And so we say with the Apostle Paul, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. From Romans eleven thirty-six. And then something else that would establish Jesus as the truth is miraculous resurrection From the dead, and that's what we are considering today. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received that how Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. I would like to read to you one of my favorite accounts of the resurrection. You may have heard this, it comes from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, I'm quoting from what he has written. Lend me your imagination for a minute. While I endeavor to picture a scene, Christ had paid the price, the full price. The price was presented before the Father's judgment seat. He looked at it and was content, but it was a solemn matter. It was not hurried over. Three days were taken that the ransom price might be counted out and its value fully estimated. The angels looked and admired the spirits of the just, came and examined it and wondered and were delighted. The very devils in hell could only express their satisfaction by biting their iron bonds and sullenly keeping silence because they had not a word to speak against the sacrifice of Christ. Three days passed away and the atonement was fully accepted. Then the angel came from heaven, swift as a lightning flash. He descended from the spheres of the blessed into this lower earth, and he came into the prison house where the Savior's body slept. For Mark, his body had been kept in prison till God ratified his atonement and accepted it. He was lying there a hostage for his people. The angel came and spoke to the keeper of the prison, one called Grim Death, and said to him, Let that captive go free. Death was sitting on his throne of skulls with a huge iron key at his iron girdle of iron. And he laughed and said, Ah, thousands and thousands of the race of Adam have passed the portals of this prison house, but none of them has ever been delivered. That key has once turned in its wards by destiny, and no mortal power can ever turn it back again and draw the bolts from their resting places. Then the angel showed him heaven's own warrant, and death turned pale. The angel grasped the key, unlocked the prison door, and stepped in. There slept the royal captive, the divine hostage. And the angel cried, Arise, thou sleeper, put off thy garments of death. Shake thyself from the dust, and put on thy beautiful garments. The master arose. He unwound the napkin and laid it by itself. He took off his grave clothes and laid them by themselves. "...to show that he was in no hurry, that all was done legally and therefore orderly. He did not dash his prison walls aside to come out, but came out by legal process, just as he had entered in. He seemed to express himself as the Apostle Paul did, "...no, verily, let them come themselves and fetch me out." So was the Master, set at liberty by heaven's own officer, who came from heaven to give him just liberty." God's proof that he had done all that was necessary. Thou Lamb of God, I see thee rising from thy tomb in splendor ineffable, dazzling the eyes of the guards and making them flee away in terror. And when I see thee risen from the dead, I see myself accepted and that all thy dying redeemed people are fully delivered. End of quote. What is the gospel? It's pretty simple. It's the good news. If you're in 1 Corinthians 15, look in verse 1. That gospel that was preached to you, the joyful news of salvation, here's the gospel. Christ died. Christ died for our sins. And Christ died and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. From verses 3 and 4 in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is the gospel by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now the King James says if you keep in memory that word. The Greek word is katecho it means to seize or to hold fast. Now you don't earn salvation by holding fast to the word In a sense, the living Word, Christ, is holding fast to you. But if you believed in vain, that means that maybe you believed intellectually, but you didn't receive it as the truth into your life. John clears that up for us, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. What if you were shipwrecked floating on an open sea? And in the early morning mist, you saw something moving on the water. And it looked like a boat, a lifeboat, coming toward you. And it got a little closer and you said, I believe that is a lifeboat, hallelujah. Well, it's not enough to believe. You have to get into the boat before you would be saved. And if you have received God's provision... Then there's some things that are going to characterize your life. You'll have a love for reading the Bible, private prayer, public worship, the Lord's Supper, fellowship with other believers, and growing in grace. Now, I'm not suggesting that you just quit your job and that's all you do all the time. But you will have a desire in your heart for that kind of thing. You'll have a desire to get into God's Word and see what He's telling you. There and rejoice in what he's done. Well, the appearance of the risen Lord. If somebody is struggling with the doctrine of the resurrection, what should we tell them to do? Go back to the Scriptures. You err because you don't know the Scriptures. It's not more evidence that we need, it's not more scientific understanding. You're going to get faith from the Scriptures because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. So if you don't believe the Scriptures are the Word of God, then we can't help you too much. But if you take this truth that is internally consistent, and you take it as an entire package of truth, it makes pretty good sense. How could we be saved other than by a Savior? How could that Savior be God except He were resurrected from the dead? But we can offer some evidence in support of Christ's resurrection. In the very first verses of Corinthians, you see Paul talking about the Corinthians' conversion. And then Paul's conversion. And Peter's conversion. And everybody's conversion that was ever converted was based on the resurrection of Christ. The fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures, we've mentioned that one. Isaiah 53 talks about the resurrection in Daniel. And in Acts 2, where Peter is preaching his sermon on Pentecost... He quotes from Psalm 16. We'll look at that one in just a minute. Eyewitnesses who had seen the resurrected Christ. Three women at the tomb in Luke 23. Peter and John saw the empty tomb in John 20. The women saw the tomb in Matthew 28. Peter saw Jesus that same day in Luke 24. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus talked with Him in Luke 24, 13. The apostles with Thomas absent saw Jesus in Luke 24, the apostles with Thomas present saw Jesus in John 20, seven disciples at Lake Tiberias talked with him, had breakfast in John 21, 500 people saw Jesus in Galilee in 1 Corinthians 15:6, James saw him in Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians 15:7, many people saw him at his ascension in Acts chapter 1 Paul saw him near Damascus, one born out of due time. But Christ got his attention as well. Stephen saw him at his stoning in Jerusalem in Acts 7. And John saw him on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. Well, more evidence. The impossibility of the Messiah being held by death. What does that mean? Here is a verse, Acts 2, 24. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. It's impossible for the Messiah to be held by the power of death. So you have to ask yourself, is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? All the evidence points to the fact that he is. Then we mentioned the promises that He would rise again, and there are a number of them uh, listed for you in your study guide. And uh, Matthew 27, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and listened to this. Even his enemies knew what he said. And they said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. It was pretty well known. So they put a guard, they put the seals, they did all those things to try to prevent that rumor from coming to the general population. The existence of the New Testament, the church, and the significance of the Lord's day. There is really no other explanation for the empty tomb. Jewish sources, Josephus point to that, Roman sources, Christian sources... But what are the speculations now that have been set forth to explain away everything that we're talking about this morning? We'll just take a look at these pretty quickly because you're probably familiar with them. The swoon or the hoax theory. Christ did not actually die. He was given a strong narcotic, so when he came down from the cross, they laid him in a cool tomb and he was kind of refreshed. And somehow he snuck out of the tomb and. Uh, tiptoed past the sleeping guards and went on to meet the women and later Peter and John and somehow they took him in and they uh, nursed him back to health and presented him as the risen Lord. Nobody believed that in ancient times. That idea comes from just a few hundred years ago because in ancient times people knew more about crucifixion and they knew more about beating people, 39 lashes that the Romans would give. They knew a lot more about execution and punishment in those days. Well, where did that theory come from? When they, the guards, were assembled with the elders, the great Sanhedrin had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say that the disciples came by night and stole the body and stole him away while we slept. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money, did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported to this day. John Chrysostom of Antioch lived in 400 A.D. He gives a pretty good answer to the theft theory. Now, the theft theory would be this. Either his friends stole the body... Or His enemies stole the body. So if His enemies stole the body before the friends could steal the body, what would they obviously have done? They would have dragged out the body and hung it up in Jerusalem and everyone could see. Could His friends have stolen the body? Would these guys have put their lives on the line for a lie? They didn't even believe in the resurrection. And they all ran away when the guards came, and Peter even cursed the fact that he knew the Lord. And now suddenly they're going to be transformed into a bunch of supermen that are going to come in and overcome the guards and roll back the stone and steal the body and tell everybody that he's been resurrected. Here is John Chrysostom, quote, For indeed, this even establishes the resurrection. The fact I mean of their saying that the disciples stole him for this is the language of men confessing that the body was not there when therefore they confessed the body was not there but the stealing of it is shown to be false and incredible by their watching by it by the seals and by the timidity of the disciples, the proof of the resurrection even is even hence appears incontrovertible end of quote well I would say amen. The hallucination theory. There is that uh, verse from Matthew 28 that tells us where that theft theory came from. The uh, Sanhedrin cooked it up themselves. The hallucination theory. All of Christ's post-resurrection appearances were the psychic effects of deep-seated emotional wish fulfillment. And this would be the position of Gerd Ludman, the German theologian. When the disciples saw the the Risen Lord, it was just a subjective dream that was brought on by their grievous disappointment that He had died and everything had collapsed. It was just a parapsychological telepathic experience that was brought on by some kind of religious ecstasy. But I don't think all of those people would have had that kind of experience at the same time. And according to the Bible, the disciples wanted to be sure that it was not a vision that they saw. Then said Jesus to Thomas, Reach hither your finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither your hand, and thrust it into my side, and don't be faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And from Luke 24, while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, Jesus said unto them, Do you have anything here to eat? And he gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. This was not a ghost. This was a real person eating a real breakfast. Well, then we come to the wrong tomb theory. This idea says the women went to the wrong tomb and everybody just followed them there. So everybody made a mistake. What would be wrong with that? If they had gone to the wrong tomb, I'm sure Joseph of Arimathea could have pointed out the right tomb. And I'm sure the Sanhedrin wouldn't have had any time wasted in finding the right tomb and bringing the body out for everyone to see if Christ did not rise from the dead. Then finally, the legend theory. According to this hypothesis, tall tales began to spread in the years after Christ's resurrection. All kind of things. And here was a guy who could raise people from the dead. Here was a guy who could heal the sick and the lame and could walk on water and do all kinds of things, amazing things. Why could that not be the case? There were too many people still alive when the New Testament documents were written who could say, wait a minute, he couldn't really do all that. I was there with him. That would be kind of like you writing a book today saying Elvis Presley could heal people and walk on water and raise people from the dead. There are too many people around who were here when Elvis Presley was here. And they could say yay or nay on that. And certainly I think that would be the case. Paul wrote the book of Corinthians about 25 years after Jesus' death. Here's what John the Apostle says that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life what's the rationale today for people who say there's no resurrection it is an anti-supernatural interpretation of life everything has to be explained according to the laws of science and the laws of physics. But Christ doesn't operate according to those laws. Oh, most of the time we function according to those laws, but then we see things that supersede those laws and we call it a miracle, the miracle of the resurrection. Well, if you have an anti-supernaturalistic worldview, then you couldn't believe that God created the world because if God created the world then it's easy for him to bring Christ back from the dead. You can see why there's such an attack on the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters. Well, we want to close with the significance of the resurrection, and we'll go through these quickly as they're listed in your study guide. The resurrection is the central truth of the gospel because it validates all the other claims of the gospel. If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We might as well turn this church into a museum or uh, maybe a business of some sort. The resurrection proves that Christ is the Son of God. John ten seventeen. for this reason, the Father loves me, says Jesus, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, if He did have authority to take it up again, then it's true. If He didn't have authority to take it up again, then Jesus would be dead in the grave. The whole thing caves in. Number three, the resurrection attests to the truth of Scripture. In Peter's sermon, he quotes the Old Testament. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And he's quoting loosely from Psalm 16. He's basing what he's saying upon that, Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. The resurrection assures us of our own future resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left, will certainly not, to left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. But we will be raised, the, de- the graves will be opened, and the dead will rise." The resurrection is the evidence of a future coming judgment. Paul is speaking at the Areopagus to all the intellectual people there in Greece. And he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That was all people everywhere. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him. From the dead. If Christ is risen, there will be a future resurrection and a future judgment. Of course, we won't be judged for our salvation. We will have to give account of the way we invested our resources, our time, and so forth, our lives here on earth. But we will be saved if, in fact, we know Christ is Savior. The resurrection is the guarantee of our future inheritance. First Peter chapter one, verse three. the sword of the Spirit, which is the Scripture. Resurrection is the basis for Christ's priesthood. Hebrews 7.23 Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. We have become a priesthood of believers. We don't have to go through an earthly priest. We can go directly to the high priest, and that's Christ who lives forever. Well, He was killed, so He must have come back to life. The resurrection gives power to the Christian life. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you need power in your life right now? How about some resurrection power? the working of His mighty strength. It's available to us as we ask from Him. Now, we can't just take power and do anything we want to with it. But as we pray according to God's will, that power is available to us. Well, the resurrection is the only absolute proof of immortality. Again, basing what we're saying on the Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to the gospel To light through the gospel, resurrection is the only proof of that immortality. Have you ever talked to anybody that has come back from the dead? Well, when you get home, talk to yourself a little bit. Because I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I was dead in trespasses and sins, but Christ made me alive. Now I live for Christ, the last one. The resurrection cannot be duplicated historically by false religions. Can you think of any religious founder who claimed to have been resurrected from the dead? Only Christ. And see, Christ was—he didn't live in a long time ago that you could know only from the epics of the ancient Hebrews. He lived in a time that is recorded historically. And everything we see in the Scripture fits right in with the history of what was going on at that time. Some things we haven't explained yet because through archaeology and other means we haven't discovered that evidence. But all the evidence that we have discovered... Oh, I was reading this weekend about a guy who wrote an article about the new evidence for the exodus coming out of Egypt. Very, very interesting. New archaeological finds that validate what the Scripture says. "...there will be many who will come in my name," Christ said, saying, "...I am the Christ and shall deceive many." For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. Now, I don't know what all is coming in the future. There are going to be some strange things happening in the future. But I do know in the past, Christ's resurrection has not been duplicated by any religious founder or by anyone else. On Easter Sunday, we could say that Christ did all He promised in the Scripture by His resurrection from the dead. It could be proven by His resurrection from the dead. What about you this morning? Are you willing to get into the lifeboat? How do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is to confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And then you just come to Christ, even in the quietness of your own heart. And you say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. I want to commit my life to you. I want you to live your life through me. Thank you for forgiving my sin and purchasing me a place in heaven. And that's about all there is to it. But it's not saying a prayer. It is praying a prayer. And of course, prayer expresses the desire of our hearts. I would encourage you, if you don't know Christ or you're not sure that you know Him or that your life is committed to Him, this would be time to get in the lifeboat and begin to experience the resurrection power that only comes through the spirit of the resurrected Christ. It was the incomparable Christ who said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there is someone here this morning who has never committed his or her life to Christ, that this might be the day, Easter Sunday, in the year 2013. Lord, we understand that one day these years are going to run out. And it's appointed unto man once to die, And after that comes the judgment. But we thank you that we can be confident that we may stand in the judgment because Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And His record, His perfect record has been credited to our account if we know Him. Lord, what an amazing plan of salvation. And I would ask that your spirit might touch the heart of anyone here this morning who needs to make that transaction with you. And other than that, Lord, we thank you for resurrection power. Many of us have seen that power in operation in our lives through all kinds of things, sickness healed, amazing events that have taken place, the things that the world might call coincidence. But we know that they came in answer to our prayer. And we thank You for that power that is available to us. Lord, we live in difficult times and we pray that we might stand firm in the faith that You have delivered once to the saints. As we go to a time of prayer now, we ask that You would remind us of the things about which we need to pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.